this, the, the lyrics of this song were written only about a year after the author was saved. Uh, but as you look at and sing the lyrics, think about how deep they are and think about what they mean and all that God taught this man in just a year. <clears throat> Charles Wesley to write, oh, 4,000 tongues, was a passing comment of a friend who said that I wish I had a thousand lives, a thousand tongues to sing my maker's praise, my savior's praise. And Charles sat down and penned that hymn. 209, grace that is greater than all our sin, verses 1, 3, and 4.
152. 152. And, and uh, the tune, if you read music and you want to follow, don't pay attention to the music here because we're using the music from hymn number 99. <laughs> now you'll recognize the tune of 99 as a Christmas song, Angels from the Realms of Glory. <laughs> so we'll sing the, the lyrics, the words from 152 to the tune of 99. And if you are skilled enough to flip back and forth, <laughs> I'd like to get your autograph. <laughs> Doctrine. Of course, that song's about the sixth coming of Christ. And that'd be found in Revelation 19. Uh, are you going to have um, Alalani? Yes. Stay here tonight? Good. Okay. Turn to the book of Revelation tonight. The book of Revelation. We are trudging through the Revelation. Not because it's difficult, but because it has so much to say practically. Revelation chapter 2. We have worked way through chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, verse number 1. Revelation 2, verse number 1. of Ephesus write these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlestick verse number two I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hast not fainted. Now, these first three verses tell us some good things that the Ephesian church has done, and the Lord himself says this about them. He says in verse number two, I know, I know, I want to emphasize the I know part of what this verse is saying. Now, the Lord is not there physically to the Ephesian church, neither will he be there physically with all the other six churches, the seven churches of the Revelation. But he does say, I know. Now, let me ask the question again. How does the Lord know, though he's not there in person, about the goings on of these churches? How does he know? Well, the fundamental answer is, going back to the nature of God. And if you know about the nature of God, you know that it straightens out a lot of things and it gives you a lot of clarity about uh, about life because when you know about what God is like and who He is, it gives you, the Christian, a lot of peace because, for example, He says, I know. He knows because He is God. Now that's a very simple thing to remember, but sometimes we forget that God is God and He is the God who is eternal. He knows everything. He's om omniscient. He is all-seeing. He's everywhere at the same time. Therefore, how could he not know what's going on in these churches? He says, I know because of who he is. And then what does he know? What does he know? I know. I know. Well, he knows what is going on and what has gone on in the Ephesian church and the other six churches. What he knows is verse number two. I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience. Now he mentions the word patience two times. Look at verse number three. And has borne and has patience for my name's sake. Now, uh, we want to remember that uh, the Lord knows everything, sees everything, much greater than London sees and knows everything. I say that because in London, they have over a half of a million closed circuit TV cameras in London. It's everywhere. It is said that every day, uh, a citizen or someone who goes through London is seen on camera 300 times. They have cameras everywhere and the reason is it's because of crime. Every imaginable crime that can be committed in stores, out of stores, any kind of crime is probably going to be picked up on the closed circuit TV cameras and uh, yet people who commit crimes sometimes forget that there's a camera watching them. Now here's a lesson to learn from life. As most people who are not criminals don't see the cameras, as criminals who commit crimes do not realize that they're being filmed, they keep, they keep footage two weeks, for two weeks. As people on the ground are not aware or they forget that they're being taped, it is also true that we forget that God knows everything and sees everything. We forget that because we're down here looking this way and this way. We forget that there is, quote, cameras watching us. And I'll guarantee one thing. These cameras are going to record things not just for two weeks, but it's going to be recording things for the life of a Christian, for reward's sake, at the judgment of Christ, and also recording things that people do in general. Now, here's a good quote I want to give to you. This is original. Original from this Chinese brain. This is real. Original. Never make the mistake. Because you can't see God does not mean he can't see you. Amen. And that's pretty good for a public school boy. <laughs> Never make the mistake. Because you can't see God does not mean he cannot see you. Amen. 
And so he sees everything going on in the Ephesian church. This is good, and then it's also not so good. It just depends on what a person's doing. If you're living right, you're glad that the camera's watching you because the Lord can protect you, guide you, give you comfort, give you strength. He knows all about things. But if a man is or a woman is living wrong, then of course it's not good because it is heaping for themselves judgment until the day to come. And so it works like that. Now, in chapter 2, verse number 2 and 3, it says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now, the, the church is known for, the Ephesian church is known for a couple of things, and he emphasized the word patience two times. Because any Christian, any church, the Ephesian church, uh, they had some good things that they were doing in service and in works and ministry. And uh, his, their works are noticed. It is appreciated. The Lord commends them for their works. But he says patience two times. Very patient people. Can I, can I tell you practically that patience is a virtue? Patience is one of those things in life that you must have. And patience is something that you learn to develop. And uh, patience is not something that is, is easy to come by for the American in our culture because we're so anxious to get something done so quickly. Isn't that so? We're always in a hurry. Uh, Recently, in the last few days on the roads, I've seen so many of Teslas, they, they cut in front of me. They cut very close to my left uh, fender. They seem to be able to just move like that. And I don't know, I get irritated with that because first of all, it's a Tesla. And they, you know, going around like that. And they just seem to be um, glorying in the fact that they have one. I'm just guessing. I don't know the people, of course. I'm not saying anything negative, but I'm just saying that's what I see. And... Um, you know, we're busy people. We want to get to point A to point B really quick. But one of the good things about the Bible, it tells us to have patience. Because he mentions patience twice, and I count words. When I count words, it means something to me. Verily, verily. It's an emphasis there in what Jesus is saying. And he mentions here, the Lord does patience two times. He says he knows their works and their labor and thy patience. And so this must be something good to develop in our lives as Christians. He also mentions this before I get to that part about patience. He says that in verse number two, um, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them lost and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake. Let me say something about that phrase. For my name's sake. For Jesus' sake, the Ephesian Christians were serving the Lord. For Jesus' sake, for Jesus' purpose, for Jesus' glory, for Jesus' honor, they were doing what they were doing as Christians in the Ephesian church. You remember that when we serve the Lord, when we work for Him, we do things for Him, it is really for His sake. You may remember that when we do something for the Lord, He gives us the opportunity to serve Him. It's a privilege to be a co-laborer with God and that we do things for Jesus' sake. Which is to say, we, we don't, we, we, we go the extra mile because it's for Jesus' sake. We don't just do things for the appearance of it, for the acknowledgement by our fellow Christians no that will come but we don't seek it but we serve the Lord we do things for him it is for his sake for Jesus sake now, when I think about church history I think about people who suffer for Jesus sake they suffered not because they wanted to they suffered because it was for Jesus sake they would not deny him as the Lord of their life and as their Savior and of course they did not want to lose everything lose their lives but they did that for Jesus' sake. You find that in Matthew chapter 
5 verses 10 through 12. They suffer for Jesus' sake. They live for him and they die for him. That's real Christianity. That's real faith in a living Savior. And so now we come back to the word patience. Mentioned twice. I've said that three times now. Patience because I want to emphasize the point about patience in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church. Patience is something you just need to have and develop that because patience is just a part of living the Christian life. Now, I'm not a farmer. Thank God I'm not a farmer, but I wish sometimes I had the farmer's fruits. But uh, farmers prepare the soil. They work the soil. They plant the seed, fertilize everything. They water it. They watch it, take care of it. And they're hoping for a good crop one day. It takes several months for a crop to come up. Now, over in the mainland, if you see these cornfields, it's a funny thing. Over in Michigan, it's farm country where my mother-in-law lives. They, when we get there the first day, if it's daytime, the corn is planted, it's about that tall. Every time we pass by, it grows a little bit more. It's like we're imagining it, but it's growing so fast right before your eyes. After three weeks, the thing is about seven feet tall. And they say you can hear it crackling. It's not crack a pop. You hear it making noises coming up. And if you had uh, a camera to do, uh, what do you call it when they um, edit it so that it speeds it up, you can see it growing and coming up so quickly. That's amazing. But a lot of things take time to grow. If you're a farmer, you're going to have to have one word starts with a P. Otherwise, you go crazy. The P word, patience. Now, how long does pineapple take to mature before you harvest it? 18 to 24 months. That's a long time. Now, if you like to eat pineapple, grow it, and sell it as a cash crop, you better have a lot of patience because it's going to take a long time for it to grow. He says here, I want to commend you folks twice now. He says, for your patience. The Ephesian church was a working church, a servant church, but they have a lot of patience too. You're going to have to have some patience in your life. And because you have patience in your life, you don't stop doing what is the right thing to do. Come to Galatians chapter 6. Back up to Galatians chapter 6. Patience is a very important word in our Christian our Christian's vocabulary because it keeps us focused on the right things. If you don't have patience, you might just throw up your hands and say, oh, what's the use? Galatians 6, 9. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about practical Christian living. Let us not be weary in well-doing. And that's the reason I said... Uh, patience, just keep doing the right thing as a Christian because it will bear fruit one day. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. And so patience is just a real good quality to develop. Now, uh, how does God make us grow in us patience? How does God grow patience in us? Does he just give it to us because we ask for it? I have a verse that's not a good verse to give to you. you. Ready for this verse? This verse is not a good verse. Romans chapter 5. Here's how God gives you patience. If you need patience, here's how God gives you patience. You're not going to like this verse. Romans chapter 5. It is a, it's a terrible verse in a way. Because here is a method, here is a tool that God uses to help you have patience. Oh boy. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Therefore, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace 
wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. Here's the bad verse. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh something. Now, do you know why it's a hard verse to, to see and to practice? That's how God gives us patience. The fruit of patience is tribulation. If you are impatient and you want God to give you patience, He might give you patience through the vehicle of tribulation, trials, troubles, hardships. That's one way God develops patience in you. The other way He develops patience in you as a Christian is that He, he doesn't give you what you really want now. He doesn't give you the fruit now. He lets you wait for it as you keep doing the right thing, as you keep being faithful in well-doing, and then you will soon see the fruit or the results or the harvest. And so in due season we shall reap. One more verse I'd like to give to you about patience. 1 Corinthians 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse number 58. This is one of those good verses that Paul has written in the New Testament in his epistles. He's got a bunch of them. This is one of them. Verse number 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. That doesn't mean stubborn. It means you are not going to be weary and well-doing. Unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So all these verses go together. All these verses speak about the Ephesians. You should go back to Roman Revelation chapter 2. It speaks about the Revelation uh, church, Ephesians, specifically that this church was commended for their patience, for their faithfulness. And so... The lesson is obvious for us to learn today. Go back to chapter 2, verse number 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. Now, it's funny because the next part, he talks about being impatient. He commends for being patient. Now he says in verse number 2, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. To me, that's kind of funny. It's, it's hilarious that he says... Praise God, you, guys, you, you folks are so patient. And now he says, however, how thou canst not bear them that are evil, which are evil. Now, these people who are evil are unidentified. He does not ID the evil people of verse number two. Let's talk about them. When you don't have an identification of a subject matter, you just have them, so it's people, which are evil, then you're left to guess, who are these evil people that they cannot bear? They have no patience with them. They have patience in this and this, but they have no patience with them. It's kind of funny to me. So it doesn't tell us who they are. So who do you reckon they are? Well, I'll give you a clue. If you cannot identify something, you do have the clue, them which are evil. You want to do some checking of other Bible references, other scriptures, and try to see if there's something between the lines here that you find from another scripture. So, for example, when I check this out and try to scratch my head and see, you know, this, well, what this is this all about? I've read so many different opinions about this in commentaries, but I've come to a conclusion. I want to come to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think I may know who the evil people are here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I say I think it's because I'm not certain 100%, but I think I am correct about who these evil people are from 
from what 1 Corinthians 5 tells us. So come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse number 9. Actually, let's begin at verse number 1. It is reported to commonly that there is fornication among you, among the Corinthian congregation, the Corinthian church. And such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Ye have puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, verse 3, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit um, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Verse 8. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. What are, my, what are you getting from this chapter? Connection to Revelation chapter 2 about those that are evil. I think it's about a sinning brother in the church. I think it's about someone, go back to Revelation chapter 2. I think it's about some church member of the Ephesian church that has gone astray that has been living in sin and he has not repented of his sin and he is just bringing the name of Christ down into the mud into the gutter and he the Lord commends this church the Ephesian church for not having patience with that kind of a Christian that kind of a church member how thou canst not bear them which are evil and I think that's what he's talking about up here unnamed person unnamed Christian I don't know how many uh, Paul mentioned one man in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and so maybe one I don't know but it's someone who is doing evil in the church and so that person was confronted that person probably did not repent of it and so it was the same thing as in 1 Corinthians 5 don't have company with him sometimes sometimes when you're with your Christian friends or church fellow church members and you have a fellowship it's such good company such good company by the way, do you know what the shortest distance between two points? It is good company. Now think that through. The shortest distance between two points or the quickest trip is with good company because it's pleasant. The company here is about people who have been living in sin and they do not repent of it. They're bringing shame to the church, bringing shame to the Lord. And Paul, Paul um, uh, the Lord says, you folks have 
not tolerated this, and that is good. I commend you for that. You've not had patience for this man. Now come over to Matthew chapter 18 as another bit of scriptural insight about what probably happened at the Ephesian church. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is the scripture that you go to when you have to confront someone, a church member, a Christian. By the way, do you know that sometimes people don't want to belong to a church because of this factor? Let's go see why they don't want to belong to a church. This happens a lot in America. Matthew chapter 18, come down to verse number 16. Uh, verse number 15. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Verse 15 is a very personal, one-on-one -on -one meeting confrontation between your brother, one who has sinned, one who has been offended, and you go to him, you confront him, you talk to him. There's no big deal. There's no show here. There's no fan. There's no lights, action, camera. None of that stuff is present. It's just a one-on-one -on -one meeting between two Christian men in a church. And the intent here of this confrontation is to gain your brother. To get him to see the error of his way so that he would repent. So that he can be restored to fellowship with the Lord and perhaps with other Christians. Look at verse 16. But if he will not hear thee. So verse 15 was was done. There was a, hey brother, can I talk to you about something? Uh, pretty serious, I want to talk to you, please, after church, okay, or no, before church, or can I meet with you at your place in my place, or something like that. And so they have met, they have talked, and um, if he shall hear thee, if he listens, hears you out, and he says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, I, I, I didn't realize, you know, whatever, and he says, please forgive me. He says, no problem. I just want to let you know because I don't want this thing to escalate into a bigger problem. I was hoping I was wrong, but I had to ask you about it because I saw it. I heard you say it. And I just want to make sure that I wasn't wrong. So, you know, I'm glad we got this straight enough. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Would you correct me? So on. Good. You being your brother. Now look at verse number 16. But, 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 if he will not hear thee, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So that same brother would not listen to the one who approached him. And he says, look, uh, you know, let's, let's get this thing cleared up and so on. He comes back with another brother or so. And now when he says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, it is so that it's not just hearsay now. He said, I said. It's now witnesses that have heard and seen the expressions, the actions, the behavior, the the body is the whole thing and heard the words come out of his mouth and now they have an opinion about what happened or what didn't happen. And now it's not just hearsay. It's not one against one. Verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, can you see the progress there and the progression, the pattern? First it's personal. Hopefully it's solved on that level, on that issue, but it's not. So it goes back with another couple of brothers and they confront him and... Um, Let's, let's see if this information is true. If it's just rumor, if it's rumor, we're going to dismiss this, whatever. But if it's something that you're guilty of, let's deal with it. And so the man says, you know what? Don't you know who I am? Don't you trust me? I'm a deacon in this church. I've been here for 45 years. I've been here for 80 years. Don't you know who I am? I was on board the ark with Moses. Uh, Noah, excuse me. And don't you know, 
I, and I give a lot to the church, etc., etc. And now, if you neglect whatever the reasons are, you neglect to hear them. Next step, the next step takes place, verse 17. You don't want to go to this step, but it does go to this step in this example. Tell it unto the church. But if he shall neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, all this is about going back to Revelation chapter 2. It says in 2 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. The bearing of this one who is evil is almost like in Galatians, where it says to bear one another's burdens, bear, carry the load. He said, you don't want to carry this load because it's bringing shame to the church and bringing shame to the name of Christ. And the church's testimony is like, it's rotten now in the community. And when the church's community, the church's testimony in the community goes downhill, it is really hard to recover. When a pastor's name is um, stained, it's really hard for that to be recovered. It's really hard to have any credibility anymore once that happens. And so you, you Ephesian Christians, you did not tolerate this. You were patient with other things, but you were impatient with this one, and this was good. Now, I was saying, this is the reason why some people don't want to belong to a local church, because they are afraid of being church. The word is church, church discipline, where there's this ultimate confrontation, which is never, never really something you want to see happen in a church. And, um, but it has to happen sometime when there is a need for it. But some people don't want to be in a church because of this accountability. This is accountability. This is, this is belonging to the institution called the local church. This is belonging to a church where there is oversight. There is a pastor who has some spiritual authority over its members. Not a dictator, but uh, he is accountable to God for the sheep. And sheep are accountable to the church because they are obligated because of their membership and so on. And because of that, because of those factors, sometimes people just don't want to belong because there's accountability. So this is serious stuff. I've seen it. I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it once in North Carolina, another time in Virginia, and maybe four times as long as I've been a Christian where people have been churched publicly. And uh, whether it was done properly or not, I think they followed scriptural precedents and they had to do it because of the nature of the sin. And it was to clear up the air. It was to let people know that we do not approve of what this guy did or what she did. And we tried to reconcile. We tried to get them to repent and be right with God. But there, there was a stubbornness there and so on. And so it had to come to this step. It had to come to this step. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't even eat with them. Don't even eat with them. Don't have company with them. Now, of course, this goes against our modern type of Christianity, which we want to be friends with everybody and uh, you know, at this nothing has happened. But in this scripture situation, something did happen to the place where they had to dismiss the brother. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And so that's what I think he's talking about here. Now I could be wrong, but 50% of me says I could be right. Nonetheless, it's a very it's a very distasteful subject matter, but they are commended for doing what they had to do as a local church to preserve the church's integrity. Okay? All right? Now, let's go back to Roman Revelation chapter 2. 
And then I want you to come to verse number two again. There's so much here. This is why we've been going so slow. First he says, I commend you. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and, and number two, the second thing he gives them a pat on the back for, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And he goes on to say, and has found them liars. Now that's pretty strong talk. This whole thing is pretty strong. It's very confrontational, which is okay because it's in the Bible. And the second thing that he commends them for is to confronting these false apostles. Confronting the false apostles. Now listen to this. This is kind of hilarious. It's not funny funny, but it's hilarious. It's ironic, I should really say. Because this is a first century church and everything is very fresh and new. Everything is very like they they had contact with um, you know apostles, they had contact with everything is so new. Yet they have issues in this church. They have problems in these churches. All of these churches, there's something wrong with them. The letters of Paul often he wrote to correct their problem in a church. He left Timoth, uh, Titus at Crete to get things back in order. First century, you have problems in churches from the very beginning, which is to teach us this lesson. After all of these centuries, after all of these years, is the church going to be better? Or is it going to have problems as well, even more problems? The answer is more problems. Things do not tend to get better over time. They think th things tend to go downhill in time unless something interrupts that downward spiral. And that's called the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. It's called putting, putting the Lord where He belongs so that people do the right thing instead. And so in this verse number two, we have the second issue that they are commended for, and that is to kick out the false apostles. He says, I know. I know what you've done. And I know about these false apostles. Besides the sinning church member or members, they confronted the false apostles. Uh, it says here in verse number two, thou hast tried them. Thou hast tried them. Now, this is somehow connected to trying on something, see if it fits. Trying on clothing, see if it fits. How can you buy a pair of shoes online without first trying out to see if it fits? They better have a good return policy and not you pay for the shipping. Um, I've never bought a pair of shoes online because I gotta try something on. Some things you just gotta try on. Uh, it looks so good in the catalog, it looks so good online, but you gotta try something on before you actually buy it. Well, try that's a small way to explain you have tried them. You've, you've, you've tested them. You've done something to see if it fits. And when they tried these false apostles, these apostles, so-called apostles, when they tried them, when they tested them, like in a court, like in a courtroom, like in a court, like having a trial, you ask questions, you put them on the stand. Now, they didn't put them on the stand, but same idea, same seriousness. These so-called apostles, they were tried like in a court of law, and they were questioned, they were prosecuted, they were asked questions, such a serious issue. And so, like in a court, went to trial. We checked them out, asked them questions, confronted them. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? You say you're an apostle, can you do this? Can you do this? 
Well, apostles are supposed to be doing these kind of things. Do you know what a real apostle should have done or could have done? Do you know what a real apostle was able to do? Well, that's the thing to know. And what the real apostles of Jesus Christ were able to do, then you put that against these so-called apostles. I should say you match them up to this. You see if they fit this. You understand the picture here? Now come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. They tried these false apostles. You would think that everyone who says they are Christian is a Christian. You want to believe that everyone who says that they're born again are born again? You would think everyone who is a pastor, an evangelist, or something like that, and have a title, a missionary, you would think that they really are legitimate? I mean, why would you want to be suspicious of everybody? But sometimes, in these days, sometimes people say they're something, but really they are not. And in, and in the Ephesian church, the Lord says, you folks have done good. Where to go, where to go, where to go. You folks tried these apostles, and they come out to be false apostles. They're really liars. They tested them. That's how they found out. Remember, 1 John says, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. See if they be of God or not. That's what they did over here. Where am I? First um, Corinthians, Second Corinthians twelve. Second Corinthians twelve, verse number uh, twelve. So I want to give you a clue as to what they did to try these men who claim to be apostles. Here's what apostle, an apostle, a real apostle of Jesus Christ, was able to do. Verse twelve. Truly, the signs, the signs of an apostle. Signs always have a connection to the Jewish people. Surely the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. Oh, there's that word for the third time. In all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, that's a very important verse for us to know today as Gentiles because we do not need signs to believe. We have the word of God. The just shall live by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need that, not signs. Jews always required signs. Look at verse number um, 12 again. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders, and mighty deeds. Now, a real apostle could do these things. What specifically could he do, these real things? Well, come over to the book of Mark. Come to the book of Mark. The ending of Mark, you have a short list of what a real apostle of Jesus Christ could do. Mark 16, Mark chapter 16, come to verse number 17. These signs shall follow them that believe. All right, watch carefully. In my name shall they cast out devils. That's number one. Number two, they shall speak with new tongues. Number three, verse 18, they shall take up serpents Number four, verse 18. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Number five, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, out of the five things in this short list of what a real apostle could do, which one do you think people today pick? Let's go back over the list of verse number 18 again. Because I'm, I'm stressing to you that the Ephesian church were commended for trying these so-called apostles. They put them to the test. They confronted them, asked them hard questions. All right, can you, 
All right, number one, verse 18. Uh, can you pick up a deadly serpent? Can you pick up a serpent? Well, some parts of North Carolina, certain times of year, they do that in the mountains. Um, if you ever go to some of these country churches in the South, North Carolina, the mountains, so on, as an example, you find all these pictures along the walls of this country church. They're all pictures of men. You might ask, well, who are these men? Well, these are former pastors, <laughs> former deacons. They all got stinked, you know, they died. That's kind of a light way of saying it's not a very good occupation to, to have in the country that church that believes in picking up serpents to prove you have faith. Now watch this, verse 18. Do modern apostles today pick up serpents? No, they don't do that. Drink any deadly thing? No, they don't do that. Lay hands on the sick? They try that. Look at verse 17. In my name shall they cast out devils? They do try that. They shall speak with new tongues. They do want that. They do want the laying hands on the sick. So they pick three out of five. They don't take the serpents and deadly poison. I wonder why. And that's what the kind of question they had to these apostles at the Ephesian church. They asked them hard questions. These are not questions to provoke someone to get angry or, oh, you're being picky. No, they're being scrutinizing of People claim the apostles, and here's a test of what an apostle can do. Can you do these things? Let me see you speak, and they, they, they speak in tongues, they fake the speaking tongue. Let me hear, see you heal someone. They do the so-called healings. Wait a minute now. Is it a bona fide healing? Is it for real? Well, let's go find out from the doctor. Now, the thing that makes you realize that they're false apostles, and uh, the Ephesian church did, but they tested them, they tried them out, and they could not fulfill these things. They could not do the things of a real apostle. Now, when it says lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, let me just get off this point now. It does not say when we pray for the sick, they shall. it says they shall recover. It doesn't say I might, I might not get this one healed because well, what's wrong here? Oh, he doesn't have, you don't have any faith. Go home and pray for a whole day so your faith is strengthened. Then you come back and I'll heal you. It doesn't say that. But that's how it is excused when there's not a healing in the healing line. It says they shall recover, but not everyone is recovered from the so-called healing line. It's because it is not legitimate. And the healers of today, like the false apostles here, are just false. And they were tested. They were tried. They're found to be, it says, the Lord says, liars. Now, you and I cannot imagine Christians professing Christians to actually lie, especially someone on TV, especially someone with a big name or a big following, he cannot be a liar. We're not saying everybody is a liar, but John did say that the Lord said to him, they're liars because they profess to be something, but they're not. Serious words, serious words, because all of this is very serious. And so they were confronted, they're found to be fake apostles, they were just named like that, they were identified. And he says, you had no patience with these kind of people, which is a good thing. Can I tell you this? Uh, a, a church, a local church that is supposed to be believing the Bible and preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, is known for what it believes, what it believes, and what it doesn't tolerate, what it rejects, what it turns away. They were found to be liars. When a church is all-inclusive, that's a problem. 
because the church cannot possibly include everyone in the church. Unbelievers, you cannot include everyone in the church. And so they had no patience with these people, these sinning brothers and these fake apostles. By the way, lest you think that this is pretty harsh, and we may think this because of the way people think today in this generation, even of Christians, love, toleration, mercy, grace, 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 and all of a sudden, that's all very true, and thank God for His grace and His mercy, but there are some things in which you cannot let someone who is sinning and would not repent remain in good standing in the church because that is bringing shame to Jesus Christ's name. That cannot go on. Our church is known for what it does not tolerate as well as what it teaches and what it preaches and what it tries to do. All right? Okay. Well, all those are good things. Look at verse number six. Excuse me. Back to verse number, verse number three. After he says these false apostles are liars and has borne and has patience for my name's sake. And that's the reason why they did what they did for Jesus' sake. You know, for Jesus' sake, people do funny things. They do odd things. They do strange things. They do sacrificial things. They do inconvenient things for Jesus' sake. They go out of their way to do something for Jesus' sake. It could come in the form of doing something good for someone else. It could come in the form of giving money to, uh, you know, or to extending your, yourself, your time. But it, it, it all comes out to be it's done for Jesus' sake. If we had our way, we wouldn't do anything in the flesh. What would you do if you had your way with your life, with your day? Would you do anything for somebody else if you had your way? No, I wouldn't. When I'm sleeping, leave me alone. When I want to be by myself, I don't want to be bothered. But that's the flesh. But if you do things for Jesus' sake, usually it means you're going to inconvenience yourself for Jesus' sake cause for Jesus purposes for the word of God for the sake of other Christians you know the apostle Paul went out of his way to help people all the time and so that's for Jesus sake now look at verse number four nevertheless uh oh nevertheless you have got to be kidding me I thought this was a perfect church nevertheless however or but nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because Here's the reason why he has a, a bone to pick with this church. As good as this church was, as busy active as it was, as faithful as it was, he still says, however, I got something to tell you that you're not going to like to hear. I have someone against thee. Why did you do that? I can't believe you did that. After all these good things you did, I can't believe this. He says it like this. I have someone against thee because thou hast left thy first love. That's the accusation. That's the charge. That is the, the beef that he has with this church. You've left your first love. Well, that's a pretty serious issue when you do that, church, he says. And you need to get back to that. He says in verse number five, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Think Think, think, retrace your steps and see where you let things fall apart. Go back to where you became careless. 
Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. You didn't just fall all of a sudden. You fell gradually, slowly, incrementally, until you, you, you fell in love with me. You made something else your first love. We're right around the board, different issues, different things. Um, well, sports, work, recreation, entertainment, whatever it is. Husband, wife, kids, grandkids, anything else. Travel, whatever you like to do. Where would Jesus Christ be in that mix? You know, he says over here, whatever it was, you've left your first love. I didn't leave you, you left me. I was right there, but you left me for other things. You went after this, you went after this, you went after this, and you left me. You left your first love. I'm your first love. But he says, you left me. He says, no, don't leave it there. He says, remember what happened. Go back to what happened, the, the causes, the factors that got you to lose your love for me. And then do the first works. Do the things that, that got you to fall in love with me. Do the things that enhanced your love for me and all that. And then go back to that again. It's one thing to feel bad about something. It's one thing to feel guilty about something. It's another thing to do something about it. And so feel bad about it. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. And do the right thing now. You can fall in love again. You can fall in love again. Remember, repent and do the things that got you to love Lord in the first place. Now let me close by telling you this. Emphasize that point again. When you got saved, you didn't know much about the Lord, I don't think. Um, and you, you gradually read the Bible, began to learn some things about it. You began to see how good he was to save you. You learned about how patient he was and all the good things. That, and, you, and sometimes you find yourself thinking, well, if I didn't, I would have been lost. If I got, if I got into that, I would have been dead. Or if, and you, you think like that, and you say to yourself, God kept me alive so he could save me. And then you think like this, maybe. Well, if it wasn't for my friend, if my, you know, the circumstances, I wouldn't have got to know the Lord now that I do. And if it wasn't for this Bible, I've been, and I, oh, I learned so much and so on. And your, your affection grows. And that's the first works. Your affection is growing. And you begin to love the Lord even more. And you can't wait to go to church. You want to sing hymns. You want to, you want to serve. It's something, you want, see, that's all. You're loving the Lord. And then something has happened as you're growing up. First year, second year, everything is good. Third year, still good. Fifth year, uh, you get distracted now. You get busy and doing something. And pretty soon, um, you don't read your Bible anymore. Pretty soon, you don't pray. Pretty soon, you, don't, you skip in church. Pretty soon, a lot of these different things are happening. Small things are taking place. And you've left your first love. And pretty soon, other things become very important to you. Uh, there's important things that are uh, overtaking your love for the Lord. It may not be bad things. Maybe just innocent, enjoyable things. But they have become more of a priority for you than your your heart with God. See, and he, you folks have done such good things at Ephesus there. I want to tell you that, but you know, you, you've left your first love. You got to go back to Him. You got to go back, and you got to you got to fall in love with Him again. Do what you got to do. Your first place to fall in love with the Lord again. You got to do that. Got to do that. How long have we been married? Forty-five. Forty-five long years. 45 long years and there were times in our 45 long years in which I did not feel like I loved her so much because I have a selfish ego and I have a selfish will and I have a selfish I want to do what I want to do and who, who wants to take her out to garages all the time I want to do something I want to play golf I want to do this I want to do that I don't want to take my wife to some silly garage to save $10 oh brother but I do it who wants to wash dishes at home 
Who wants to wash dishes? Well, I wash dishes. And you know, my wife appreciates that. And I do small things for my wife because that helps me to remember that I am married to her. It helps me to remember that I'm married to her. And she said to me, I do, back in June 11th, June 11th, 1977. She said, I do to me. And I said, I do, or I will to her. I forgot what I said. That's taken up the floor. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I must have said, I do, because the ring was put on my finger. I put a ring on her finger. And off we went, happily married, ever after. Not so. Because I'm selfish in my nature, and she is too. And sometimes she has been so angry with me. That's, that's right. I know you find it hard to believe. But she's been so angry at me because I just pushed her to that place in my in my meanness as a human being, even as a Christian, and vice versa. And uh, there are some times in which we didn't feel like we loved each other. And sometimes you say things in anger that you don't really mean. Like, well, I won't say it, but uh, at the moment it seemed like the thing to say, but it was wrong afterwards. And then after a while you apologize, you're sorry, you really are, and you want to do better again. You tell each other, sorry, love you. Um, and I want to do better, and you do, and you try, you ask God to help, and he does, and things get smoothed out. So you do lose your love, but you don't have to leave it there. You can get it again. That's right. So after all of these long eons of time, would, would, would you say you love me more now than you did when we first got married? said, I do. You better say yes. Okay? She's smiling, but she didn't say yes. And so I would say that I do, and uh, it's 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 better now than it was way back then, because we learn we've learned a lot of things, and we have learned to get back to our first love. See, so the Lord is supposed to be the first in my life and first in her life, and because that is the case, we I mean, both we work hard to keep our relationship healthy and strong. See, now I'm not a very verbal "I love you" kind of a guy, but she is, and uh, but uh, you have to. You have to do the things that will restore your love for Jesus Christ. Okay? So tonight, go home, have a good quiet time, and have a little Bible reading time, and thank God for who He is. Thank God for Him saving you. Thank God that you still are alive. And thank God you have a few more years left in this life that only He knows how many you have. And thank God you can function. And then appreciate the things that He has done for you. And it's not even November yet. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word. We pray that you help us to digest some of the things practically from this first Ephesian church. And there's more to learn. And uh, But we don't want to just get theologically things right. We want to be right practically. And so help us, Father, to look at the book Revelation in that way. And teach us as we go. Remind us as we go. And first of all, and most of all, may this church, and may we as Christians in this church, uh, always put you first, and always put love for you first. Uh, and so may we serve you and do things for you, for your sake, and not for ours. And we pray that you give us blessings because we have that desire and want to do right. And we pray that you bless your people, give them the right heart, give them the right spirit. Help us, Father, to be the kind of a church that when you look down upon us, that we would be commended for our service and other things, but also because we did not lose our first love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.